In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Featuring those writing books, living by trees, nesting rooks, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. As you may recall, I started this third series all about our native trees by saying, This season, due to all too unfortunately apparent reasons, we are branching out. This season, I'm not roaming the highways and byways to make fascinating friends, nor am I planning to interview them via Zoom, because Lord knows we've had enough of that. Now, before I'm forced to eat my words, let me precede my introduction to this week's guest by saying that when I first started this podcast about three years ago now, I wrote a list of my ideal guests, many of which I've already had great fortune to have interviewed. But this week's guest was right at the very top. And as such, when given the chance to speak with him, even if it was necessary to do it over the soul-crushing Zoom, I couldn't exactly say no. So... Peter von Leben is a forester. That's it. Or at least that's how it started. But having spent his life in the forests of Germany and later the world, he has made it his mission to spread his understanding of trees to anyone who wishes to listen. And listen, they do. In their droves. Now, what makes him stand out is that he speaks not with the language of science, but with the language of feelings. He speaks of trees as plant elephants, of wood chips as shredded tree bones. He speaks of trees getting vertigo, of them communicating and of them even having memories. His knowledge of our wooden friends and his manner of expression has inspired the world. His international best-selling book, The Hidden Life of Trees, has been translated into nearly as many languages as the Bible, it's been turned into a film, and he even has his own podcast, God forbid. So, I started our conversation by asking him not about the book that made him famous, rather the book that followed it, Can You Hear the Trees Talking? This is a book deliberately aimed at a younger audience. I wanted to know why he had used his newfound profile to specifically target our society's younger readers. I, I make guided tours for children uh, since more than 20 years. And um, the idea for the children book was perhaps a little bit earlier than the, the book for adults. But I think it, it's, it's really important to tell children how a, a forest works and um, how trees are. And uh, most books for children are a little bit like biology lessons. Um, they explain how an oak looks or a beech tree and uh, what, what the functions of a tree are and not about if, if trees can communicate, if they have families, uh, if they can um, get sick or if they, f- they may feel panic and things like that. And I think that's much more interesting. And most children that I know um, don't like to go on a hike with the family on Sunday, for example, because they say, they think it's boring. And why should it be boring? Uh, a forest is full of adventures. And when, as long as children experience a forest as an adventure spot, then they will have lifelong good uh, emotions, uh, a good, good sense for, for forest, and they w- will protect this lovely spot. Do you think they get it 
more naturally than adults do. I was listening to an interview that you did with with Jane Goodall, where you were talking about how children would be fascinated by a patch of of earth with the insects and the whole world ecosystem living within that one patch, whereas the adults would be like, quick, we've got to keep going, let's not stop. Like, do you think they've got a shorthand? And if so, why do we need to help them if they are so potentially, rawly receptive to to nature? Yeah, um, we don't need to to help um, children, but we shouldn't break them. We shouldn't put, um, for example, when when, um, the families go out for a hike, then they have uh, a schedule. They say, okay, we want to make, let's say, 10 miles, and we want to have a rest um, at the next restaurant uh, at noon, and uh, at 5 p.m. we are back at the car. And so it's it's like everyday life. And it's one of the reasons why we see the phenomena of forest bathing. (laughs) People say, well, what for do we need forest bathing? I can relax in the forest um, without any guide. But we don't allow us to slow down just to sit under a tree, just to explore what's in the soil. Children can do that by nature and they learn that that is a waste of time, which it isn't. Is this something that you have learned through your life as a forester or was it something that you had from childhood? Like, were you one of those lucky children that were given a slow pace from the very beginning? Uh, Yeah, I don't know why. I have um, a brother and two sisters and they are not on the green side. Let's say like (laughs) this. I'm I'm the green sheep of the family and I don't know why. But um, after school, I I went to little ponds and um, tried to make the the frogs shouting. You can do it with a certain sound in your mouth. I'm not able to do it any longer. But but it was really fascinating for me. Or I kept spiders in glasses, which my mother don't like. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and, and or I. I um, hatched a chicken out of an egg from uh, of, of a, on a heating pillow um, because I read that that a chicken, when we talk to the egg while the chicken is in, the um, hatching chicken regard you as its mother, and it worked. It worked, but it was really exhausting because you have to care. 24 hours for this little fluffing ball. A friend of mine at the moment is bringing up a finch that got abandoned by its parents. And I get a a daily photo update of a finch just sitting in his top pocket or a finch on his computer keyboard. And the relationship is mind-bogglingly human. Like the the small bird is there looking up to this six foot five man as this is my father, this is my mother hen. It's mad stuff. It's it's, it's crazy. And uh, yeah. Did you did your schooling bring nature into it at all, or was a German education very academic and sitting down in a classroom, or did it take you outside at all? Uh, it was more academic, and um, we were explained nature as a big machine, and okay. it was really that I that I saw thought um, how if if it's possible to say that how can you enjoy sex as an adult uh, knowing that you're just a machine, because a machine is not able to able to feel love, but we were explained nature. Um, down to the molecules and to the cells. And that is just a question of hormones and uh, neural signals and, yeah, like, like a machine. And uh, I felt really sadness um, in that time because the magic of nature was gone for me. And then afterwards, I um, know um, that, that those teachers hadn't understood that there's a little bit more about nature than just machines. And that's exactly what I'm telling in the books, that trees are not just bio-robots, that they also uh, are able to feel something, that they're able to to develop strategies, that they have memories. And uh, that was a hard way back to the magic of nature. So 
I, I think it's well documented that you started off working in forestry, looking after a plantation and managing the, the harvesting of a forest and through doing so then moved on to what you're doing now. Before we get on to that, my, my question is, what got you into forestry in the first place? If you weren't interested in biology at school and you were definitely interested in chicks talking to you and spiders being a, a plaything, trees don't necessarily strike me as something that's going to come and play with you. So well, why, why did you and how did you go into forestry? As many young people, uh, I, I didn't know after school what, what to study. And um, first I um, thought about uh, studying biology and um, I was... Uh, was already fixed at the University of Bonn. And then I read about um, the, the possibility of studying forestry and I th uh, thought, okay, then I'm more out in nature and the forest uh, something, someone like a tree keeper uh, who cares about uh, the, the protection of forests. And then I started to, to study forestry. And of course, uh, after uh, having finished um, the forestry, I uh, came out in, in my forest district and then I thought, what am I doing here? I'm chopping down the, the biggest old beech trees, um, replanting plantations, um, having big machines here. That's not uh, keeping uh, forest keeping, that's forest destruction. And then, then the change came. But, but you asked for the, for the first reason to study forestry. It's was just a possibility and a thought a tree keeper that's someone like an ant in lord of the rings that's a perfect <laughs> job for me <laughs> so your your tree beard then <laughs> wonderful um you mentioned the beech forest there i think that this is something that i find fascinating is that the german word for the beach is uh die Buche, and the german word for book is die book there's an element in your new book where you talk about the color blue as a cultural thing. We have to have the word for something before we can appreciate something. So much so that certain cultures can see a blue color and others can't. Some can see multiple tones of green because they need to because of their cultural existence. Some don't. Do you think that the Germans, because the word for beach is so intrinsically linked to literature, do you think that there is a cultural appreciation for, for beech woodlands, for woodlands in general, and trees that the Germans have over every other nationality? Hmm, that's a good question, uh, because there are, uh, as you can re uh, read the books, also other words like true, uh, which, is, um, which comes from oak, the old German word drew. So yeah, I don't know. I think uh, no, I think it's, it's because uh, it was the, the most common um, tree. Not only in, in, in Germany, but also in Ireland and in, in, in Great Britain. It's, it's, so it's, it was the most common tree in, in Central and, and Western Europe. It's no wonder that it was it played a major role in, in our lives. Uh, it was um, the, the beech tree, the Buche, uh, and the oak. And um, both trees are uh, have a very important role in our language. Not just in Germany. I know what, what you're what you're uh, pointing at is like the Germans are a little bit crazy about forests, which is true. But we are not the only ones. <laughs> no, you're not. But there is there's something that I envy about the German language and the appreciation of, of nature. There's words like uh, Waldeinsamkeit, um, which means yeah. the solitude of the forest, or not directly nature related, but Fernweh, the the hunger for for travel and distant places. There's there's a poeticism that the Germans possess that the British simply don't put into words we don't care about nature in those senses oh uh, yeah but but British um, have a different relationship to forest for example when you think about the woodland trust in Germany 
one of the, the oldest organizations for forest. Um, they are making PR for the forest industry. They are also planting trees, but in plantation for the forest industry. And that's something different, <laughs> which the Woodland Trust does. Uh, I think in, in Britain, um, there's a better relationship to old trees in the landscape. You have a better structure. And um, I, I've traveled several times around, around Great Britain, and I, I think it differs, uh, of course, in, in which region you are. But in general, uh, perhaps it's not in the language, but, but it's um, in what the people are doing. And, and you can see the difference. So you have a better agricultural um, structure because trees are um, belonging almost to every little village in the, in the open fields. I think that, I mean, the the podcast that I'm doing at the moment is all about trees. And every now and again, you do focus on an individual that has had massive significance to a local community, whether it be a, a tree that trade unions were forged under or whatever. I think, I think you raise an interesting point that we, we as a nation, the Brits, because we're an island, we had to make boats and we had to make boats out of wood. So certainly the relationship with oaks, but is, is a strong one, but we certainly harvested them so much so that despite lauding the Woodland Trust, the Woodland Trust came about because we needed it. In terms of our ancient forests, we have a much less coverage in the UK than you do in Germany. There's a it's, yeah. it's a three a few percentages more that you've got, but it's, but, it's but, a notable difference. But I saw a really cool recycling village. Mm -hmm. from old ships of the fleet of Nelson. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was in Wales, uh, if I'm right. <laughs> and was, the, the driver where and, and the car where I am, and said, hey, look at this village. These are old ships from, what was it, 780 or 1800s? Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not perfect in, in British history, but, but it was impressive to see that yeah, it's it's the same um, uh, a different side of the same metal metal that um, Britain was lack of big trees and so they had to recycle old chips. Sure. I haven't seen any village in Germany made of old uh, the made of wood of old chips. Well, well, ho hopefully soon you will. Um, <laughs> we mentioned um, beeches and oaks. They're they're two. They're both from the same family, obviously of trees, and they have. More than any other tree, the best mycorrhizal fungal relationships. There's a quote in a recent book by Merlin Sheldrake that says that we view the world as being too tree-centric and we should really look at it as being fungal-centric, that it's the fungus that is using the trees to, to nurture the soil, to propagate itself, to support its own communities. What do you think about that? as a tree man, as tree beard? Uh, yeah, it's an it's a, um, interesting aspect. I've, I've um, seen a documentary, I think some month ago, um, uh, which says that, that uh, the, the fungi were, were the first species to uh, came from the ocean on land. Or I say, okay, how does it work without photosynthesis? Because uh, the fungi is not able to make photosynthesis to, to nurture itself. So I think it was a combination of, of fungi and, and plants. Um, but yeah, I think the aspect is right and we can even widen it. For example, um, we know that trees have their human system outside their roots, outside their body, uh, with, with um, thousands of bacteria protecting them. And uh, meanwhile, we don't say uh, it's a tree, but it's a hollow beyond. It's an own ecosystem. Also with, with uh, viruses. For example, trees can also uh, suffer from something similar than COVID-19. 
<laughs> not just people <laughs> so uh, and we don't think about it. we think ah that's a tree that's timber that's leaves that's roots perhaps some fungi and that's it's no no it's an old an own ecosystem and uh it's it's nearly unexplored we know some things we know how a tree grows okay but, uh, but how it really works how it interacts with, with fungi who's the main player i don't know i would say trees of course <laughs> perhaps Perhaps it's fungi. Uh, arguably, know. it doesn't matter, I guess, in in the greater holistic no, world of things. No, it doesn't matter. It's uh, more important that that it all works together perfectly. One of the things that I've, I loved, which I'd never considered before until reading your books, was the fact that trees might have a sense of vertigo. Like you mentioned, how beech trees intrinsically can sense gravity and so can thicken their bark on one side in order to keep us straight and rigid, which uh, it's wonderful. Is there any other? human senses that you think that they possess equivalent that are more bizarre more idiosyncratic than that ah i think which which is really bizarre and that's um the subject of research is still going on if trees are able to see not just dark and bright but uh really sharp and clear what's going around uh, that would make sense because they then they can prepare in advance when a deer is approaching um bunching on the on the on their leaves and um, so far there are um, detected some some little lenses on the leaves it's not, not proven if they can really clearly see but if it is so we all will have a problem when we are in the forest and we have to go for uh, certain things behind the tree <laughs> you're always watched <laughs> Um, I've got a question here that I wasn't actually going to ask. I thought it would be a bit too forward on our first encounter. Um, but I'm going to ask it because you sort of brought it up. You, you mentioned in, in The Heartbeat of Trees, in your new book, that the human skin has the ability to absorb scents uh, and smells and things like that. And our ears are equally designed to draw in more than we realize. The more exposure that we have to the natural world, the more we will come to love to cherish our place in existence. If that's the case, if your skin can smell its environment, have you ever walked around your forest naked? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so, because I wouldn't love to see my picture in a newspaper <laughs> being naked in the forest. And uh, it's not a good idea, because um, the forest in, sum in summertime, in wintertime, it's too cold. Yeah, wow. I'm freezing in the forest when I'm naked in wintertime, so <laughs> I, I don't do that in summertime. You have mosquitoes and... Sometimes I take a shower with shampoo, and mosquitoes love shampoo. So it's it's not a good idea to be freshly clean with shampoo smell and go on the forest. Uh, then it will be stitched, I, I think, um, faster than you can uh, can have a look at. So <laughs> I don't like this. And, and when I lay down in the forest with all the needles or leaves or branches on the floor. It's always nicer to have cloth on. Sure, sure. Sorry for that. That's all right. If you ever change your mind, I'm sure my listeners would love to hear about it. Um, you look after a beach forest. You give guided tours. You do forestry skills with people. You even provide places for people to be buried. You provide um, natural plots from which a tree can grow and the tree becomes the memorial. Actually, quick question. Do you, do you want to be buried beneath a tree? Yeah, I think so. Um, I would love to be buried behind our forester house uh, because our uh, the ground around is uh, f filled with trees, uh, birch, Douglas, beech, oak, whatsoever. Uh -huh. 
but I know that's crazy because after that, it don't plays any role where my, my body is sure. buried. That was a sidetrack. My, my real question is, you work a beach forest. Do you love beech trees? Is that d- deliberately why you focus upon a beech forest? Is it just happenstance that that's where you are? And if you could change to other particular kind of woodland, is there anything else you would like to work within? Uh, no, I, uh, beech trees are not my favorite trees. Um, I love every tree species where it belongs because then, when when it behaves uh, well, when it feels feels well, then then trees become majestic. For example, when you when you plant beech trees in let's say Australia, I think they will suffer and they won't look very very cool. But here in Central and Western Europe. That are great trees, uh, and uh, also oaks, also birch tree. I'm looking at a big birch tree here, right off of my uh, Forester House window. Uh, it's a very old, one of the biggest birch trees I've ever seen because it belongs to here. So I also love spruce trees, which I hate in plantations. Hmm. Not not the trees. I hate yeah. the people who, who uh, do so to the trees. The spruce trees and plantations, uh, which have, I think, in Scotland there are many um, Sitka spruce plantations. Yeah, Sitka spruce for is example. a huge one. Here they, in they belong too. to the to the um, to North America, and they look ugly. Sorry for that, because in Scotland, for example, like like all over Britain, you, you used to have big oaks mixed with beech trees. So that's a long answer. No, I don't love especially beech trees. I love every tree where it belongs. It's the one of the, one of the many mottos of the Woodland Trust. Certainly, the one that I like to push is that they say that it's it's not about lots of trees; it's about the right tree in the right place, and, exactly. And keeping yeah. it there is is yeah. the tricky thing. The irony of which I'm looking out this window, I can see a massive giant redwood. I've got a sequoia outside the window, <laughs> which definitely definitely shouldn't be there. And just to say, it it doesn't become very massive because it's not in the forest. And trees on on in the wrong place place um, they they from the height they, i think they just reach maximum half of the height in a, that they can reach in a natural force yeah have you been to the sequoia national park no would you like to would be lovely yeah i would like to go but uh yeah I, you have always that big carbon debt and you f- will fly over there so i fly to canada for example um, and help protect um, a little indigenous um people the Quica first nation to protect their homeland this is up a great bear yeah yeah, great uh, southern great bear forest, um, and they, they they should be clear cut, and uh, we try to prevent that. And um, then it's worth to fly over there and make actions with TV and press and so on, but not just to look at trees. I would love to see the big sequoia trees, but um, yeah, I think it's too late concerning climate change. Sure. So, so do you, do you not do you not fly at all unless you are flying for an active purpose of supporting the environment? Then is that a is that your current goal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. For example, next week I'm flying to Romania, the last European beach primeval forest. And uh, we have there a date with the Greenpeace and press and so on to support and to help to prevent this big clear cuts in this remaining forest. Do you think that carbon offset plans are working right now in the way that people can pay to offset their flight, for example? No, because when you fly, the, the, the CO2 is out and um, the tree would take it up uh, whether you're flying or not. But um, we are just concentrating on, on, on carbon and trees are much more important for uh, cooling down the landscape. For example, in on hot summer days in June, July and August, it's um, we have, uh, not, not I, but, but um, scientists, they um, measured that forest 
cool down um, in comparison to farmland, 10 degrees the, the air and over intact forest, you have much more rain, much more uh, thunderstorms, a lot of rain in summertime. So um, it's not all, uh, all about carbon. So um, just to answer your question, when you fly and say, ah, they are planting a tree in, let's say, Cameroon or uh, Brazil, that's worth nothing. Because that trees are in plantations and they are going to be chopped in 20 or 25 years. And then the carbon is released again. Uh, that's nothing worse. Uh, when we want to uh, do th something against climate change, we have to protect big forests so that they can do their job. Their job in cooling down uh, the climate and creating more rain. For example, in China, 80%, of the, and that's a relatively new research, 80% of the rain in China comes from the Northern Atlantic, around about uh, all, all around Brittany. And uh, you need forests to transport this humidity into the continents and, and all over to China. So if we chop, we would cut uh, our forests, then uh, China would suffer from severe droughts. Sure. This role that has sort of come upon you, you're sort of a forestry angel or protector. Is this something that's come about since the hidden life of trees? Or was this something that happened before? Or, or have you felt that your life has changed noticeably since that book came out and put you onto the international platform no I, I i did that uh, 20 years before and it was really a hard life because i was an unknown forester which uh, was thought to be crazy because uh, i wanted to protect forests and not to use them and it was really a hard life and i always made guided tours through the forest and telling the people that trees are much more than just a timber resource and my colleagues uh, they they hate me for that because people afterwards go to their forest and say what are you doing you're slaughtering trees and um, no, the, my life has become much easier now because um, I have a better standing, um, I have more, a better network um, all over the world, which I hadn't before. For example, you, you um, mentioned the, the talk with Jane Goodell. That's really cool uh, to have uh, such people in the network. And together we can reach much, much more than I as a lonely little forester in the in the um, uncrowded Eiffel Mountains of Germany. Sure. So it's much better now. In your newest book, you talk about the lignite mining in one of your nearer forests in Hambach. You talk about Great Bear Temperate Rainforest and the work you've been doing up there to support the indigenous communities. And you talk about the largest ancient woodland in Europe, in Poland. Um, uh, I can never say it. Bialowiecza. <laughs> I got invited to go there a few years ago and I didn't go probably because I just couldn't pronounce it. Um, but they have really good beer there. <laughs> the wonderful thing about <laughs> traveling in Europe. Um, do you, there's obviously a heavy burden to carry when you go to these places now. There's an expectation upon the international coverage that you bring with you. Do you worry that it's simply a spotlight that is shined on the forest when you're there and that when you leave that things go backwards almost instantaneously? Uh, that would be the case if I would just visit the spot. And then that's it. No, uh, but it isn't. For example, um, Quaker First Nation, I'm uh, I'm in a constant contact. And uh, there will be uh, the next visit next year. In between, we make uh, Facebook posts or we will, um, make letters together or whatsoever. So there's a support uh, which is in front of the visit and afterwards uh, too. Because otherwise you're completely right. That would be just, ah, it's Peter Wohlleben. Uh, some photos, a uh, little, little uh, press article, and that's it. And that's worth nothing. 
you're completely right. In discussing Poland, you or perhaps your translator uses the phrase genuine nature um, and it's used in context to the ancient woodlands and it being devoid of human life. Do you view nature as something that doesn't have humanity as owning a place within it? Nature wouldn't work without us. Uh, there are some plants, for example, like corn, uh, which wouldn't work with the people who are peeling it, the, the corns out. And the, the, there would be no reproduction uh, of corn, for example. So, no, the, the new book is so important for me because it, it uh, tells that we are part of nature. Because when we um, look the way at nature, we most people do nowadays, here is nature and there we are. So nature is something with, which has nothing to do with our everyday life. Of course, we have now understood through the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that it, that isn't the case, that we are still part of nature and that we are not able to control, control nature. Um, so I'm also against uh, protected areas where it's not allowed to walk through because uh, it's, it's not a tree zoo. Uh, we, we are part of it. We should experience it. The, all, the only uh, thing which should be forbidden in such protected forests are chainsaws. Hmm. Knowing humanity, though, and our ingenuity, we'd just go back to using those massive sort of 12-foot ones which require two people to do it. We'd still find a way. Going back to Sequoia, I think the thing that saddened me was the, the, the lengths that humanity went to to deforest these huge trees. It was quite astounding. The railroads that were built into almost impossible terrain, but yet we would do it. Human ingenuity knows no bounds, I, I fear. Um, there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. First question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, no worries about carbon footprint, where would you go? I think I would go uh, where I fly next week to the Romanian uh, ancient beach forest, because I'm always talking about the um, primary beach forest and I want to restore it in Germany, but I, I haven't seen them in reality. So it's, it's a good idea to have a look at them uh, before you want to restore them. How old are those forests over there? Uh, this forest are tens of thousands of years old, untouched um, with the oldest beech trees I know. Many foresters uh, think that beech trees can become around about 300 years but the oldest still living and still healthy trees are 550 years and the oldest known still living beech tree is in Italy in, uh, in um, Sicilia is uh, more than 700 years old so beech trees can become as old as oaks so so why why are people saying that beech trees can only live to 300 years old when we know for a fact that they can be 750 uh, yeah because in managed forests they get weak and then they live average just around about 200 years. And then foresters tell the lay people, yeah, beech trees can be as old as 200, yeah, perhaps 250 years. And lay people believe foresters. That's is sometimes is an advantage. In my case, in other cases, it's not okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, second question. Who is your natural history hero? In Germany. Wherever, anywhere. Uh, in, in, in general, oh, there are so many, 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 many people. Uh, it's really hard to say no. I, I, oh, give, because, give, me, give me your yeah. German one then. Who's your German natural history hero? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's also really, really hard to say because there are many people. And I'm, I'm not uh, someone who adore, who have a star and admire him since, since my youth time. Uh, because um, there are more the little people, yeah, let's say. You don't know him, uh, Georg Sperber. That's a um, former forester uh, who tried to protect, uh, of course, 
his beach, beach forest against the German Fourth Authority. And um, I love the, the, the little people who fight every day and not the well-known, you can see in TV, okay, what, what I'm telling you. <laughs> but, but they're more important because they fight on their own without uh, support and they suffer a lot. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do to, uh, to support those people. And um, but but that are the, the the not known people, the forgotten people of the forest. Let's say, but they are so important. Perhaps I, I don't, even though don't know the name in Romania, there have been several foresters shot down um, by uh, illegal loggers while protecting their forest. And I, I don't know their names. I hope I can uh, figure them uh, out when I visit now those forests because that are the silent heroes uh, which are fighting for for all of us. It's the exact same thing that Mark Carbadine said in one of the conversations I had with him. He was We were talking about um, anti-poaching rangers and the many numbers who die on, on an annual basis trying to protect yeah, creatures no that they are not. Them. Yeah, completely forgotten heroes. Third question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? It's <laughs> a good question. I would love to see a dinosaur, but I w- would like to meet it. So, uh, hmm, that's a really good question. I think uh, I don't know the. Um, I don't. It, it's, it's. I think it's in English. It's the same. A tarpon. It's a white horse. A European white horse. Um, that would be interesting because we have horses too, very old horses, which are not rideable anymore. But uh, I would love to see white horses grazing uh, near the Rhine River. Do you ride? Uh, I rode, but now I, I, I'm uh, 98 kilos and I'm too heavy for old horses. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sorry for that. We can get you a nice big Frisian or a Shire horse or something. I'm sure we can get something with a stronger uh, yeah, back. But uh, when, they, when they become old, I'm, I'm, I'm still too heavy for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, one final question about your, your forest that you look after. It, am I right in saying it's owned by the community? Yeah. And you're the guardian of it for now. Uh, not any longer. I'm, I'm still supporting it. I'm still looking for that forest. But the forester in this is, a, of course, younger forester uh-huh. at our forest academy. I'm supporting him. Uh, we're discussing many things. But because I'm, I'm also traveling a lot, I'm not always there. And as sure. a forester, we have to be every day in the forest to look after the trees. How are you going to protect it in perpetuity? Have you set in place any kind of rigid plans to make sure that it survives? Oh, perpetuity is not possible because our little ball in, in space will will uh, catch fire, I think, in, what is it, four billion years or so? so uh, judging uh, by yeah. how things are going at the moment, it might be a little sooner, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there, there isn't anything forever. Um, what what my, my aim is to sit in a, in, a, in a chair with the age of, let's say, 90, look back at, at my life and say, good job. <laughs> that's enough for me. I don't need to protect everything forever. And that, that's the perfect place to end the podcast. But I am going to ask just one, one final question. As you are a host of your own podcast, Peter in the Forest, Peter Underwald, what is the most interesting thing a guest has told you on your podcast? I think the most interesting thing is um, that, uh, that you can measure the cooling effect of forests in the beginning of May and the new leaves come out. Then the, the, I, I didn't know that it was known to meteorologists um, that, they, that they know 
the temperature is falling at the at the beginning of May because the trees come out with their new leaves and that the cooling effect is for them it's common and for me I, as a forester I was really surprised that okay what I didn't know that yeah that that sounds a little perhaps for lay people a little bit boring but um, I love things I, I didn't know which are obvious so so you're saying that you if the leaves come out earlier you know it's going to be colder yeah. For the rest of the year, as in the whole cycle. No, no, not for the rest of the year, but but the cooling effect, uh, which we talked about, that the trees are able to cool down um, the sort of surrounding area uh, up to 10 degrees. You're saying the trees are doing it deliberately to make it a more pleasant environment for themselves in order to survive. Exactly. In... It's not for oh, us. Wow. You can, you can um, test it yourself when it's uh, on a hot summer day. Sit under an umbrella. And then uh, sit under a tree. Under a tree, it's always uh, a lower temperature. And it's not because of the shadow. It's because of a, a tree is sweating like, like we do to cool down and, and um, you can, can feel it. So as the world is going through a case of, of chronic global warming, we should make sure that all of our trees stay in the ground because as it gets hotter, the only place to hide will be beneath the canopy of our wonderful forests. Exactly. And therefore, we need more forests. And I know that, that Brittany, for example, has big reforestation reforestation programs. And uh, therefore, it's very important to choose the right tree species, the, the, the native tree species like beeches and oaks, because spruces are not cooling that way. Wonderful. Peter, thank you very much. That's absolutely brilliant. That's That's everything and more that I wanted to know. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure to talk to you. A humongous thank you to Peter for taking time to talk to me. I hope that next time we meet that we're doing it in person, hopefully outside, hopefully in Germany and hopefully in a beech forest. Thanks also to Fiona over at Greystone Books for her patience in setting this whole thing up. And it goes without saying that Peter's latest book, The Heartbeat of Trees, is out now, is well worth your attention and available in all good independent bookshops. We're back to Trees on Tuesday, a biggie for me, The Oak, but until then, join me on Patreon, rate us on Apple Podcasts, write a review about us for your local gazette, etc. And I will see you again on Tuesday. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh